Hiring for your small business? If you're not looking for professionals on LinkedIn, you're looking in the wrong place. That's like looking for your car keys in a fish tank. LinkedIn helps you hire professionals you can't find anywhere else. Even those who aren't actively searching for a new job but might be open to the perfect role. In a given month, over 70% of LinkedIn users don't even visit other leading job sites. So start looking in the right place. With LinkedIn, you can hire professionals like a professional. Post your free job on linkedin.com slash people today. Dan Ostrovsky, how you doing, sir? Good to see you. I'm doing well. Thank you, Matthew. How are you? I'm good. I'm good. Just a little preface about how we met. Uh, you were a listener of the show. Uh, we did a meetup in, um, apparently it is Queens. I didn't know it was Queens. I thought it was Brooklyn, but apparently it was Queens. Everybody had moved from Manhattan to Queens just to meet up for, with me for a beer. We, we ended up staying there from like seven o'clock at night until past midnight, drinking beer and talking about all things crypto. And uh, you are actually a an expert and one of my favorite use cases for the blockchain, and this is why we're doing this, and this is ID on the blockchain. I have two of my favorite use cases for blockchain technology besides Bitcoin, obviously, and, and, uh, and monkey JPEGs. That would be uh, ID on the blockchain and voting on the blockchain. And so today we get to talk about ID on the blockchain. And when talking to you to prepare for this show and make an outline for this show, uh, you really dropped, dropped a lot of, I guess, deep thoughts about ID on the blockchain that I didn't think about. And I, we're going to get into all of that. And, but just to preface this for everybody, we're going to be talking about what physical ID is, as well as um, the like the more metaphysical or the, the conceptual ID of ID, um, what ID means for different contexts of your life, as well as moving it over to blockchain tech and what ID, ID on uh, the blockchain or digital identification or the future of ID would look like. I just want to start with this with asking you a very, very simple question, which I think is simple, but I, I feel like this is going to be complex. What is ID physically? Yeah. Uh, so it's not as simple, I think, as you think, because even if we start with a dictionary definition, you'll find that the dictionary would say it's the fact of being who or what a person or thing is. So. In three words, what is identity? A question's formed asking to define the entirety of what it means to be you. And it's one of the questions that fascinates me the most. I mean, even if I ask you, who is Matthew Deemer? I think that would probably be difficult for you to respond. Even when you went through an introduction for me, you had a few words about how I'm an identity expert, but that doesn't possibly, that couldn't possibly portray all of who I am. Mm -hmm. Sure, I'm an identity expert, maybe I'm the founder of a single sign-on protocol, uh, and I'm a guest of yours, but I'm also a son to my parents. I'm also a boyfriend to my girlfriend. I used to be a student for a long time. I'm a credit card and bank account holder. I'm also a citizen of the United States, and as one, I pay taxes. My identity is all of those things. And the reason my introduction that you had of me didn't go into detail about all those parts of my identity is because most of it is either private or irrelevant in the context of having a discussion around identity here today. Privacy, the security of that privacy, and the convenience for me to secure that privacy are all things we don't normally need to think about day to day in the physical world. We roll our shades down when we want privacy and assume our home isn't bugged. There, I've easily secured my privacy. Unfortunately, though, the state of the internet is such that all three features in one identity solution 
has not been possible. But of course, we're talking today because decentralization has finally shown us a path. Well, I think you just already dropped enough knowledge for this podcast. Right, thank you for coming on the show. And uh, we're, <laughs> we're going to go and try to digest all of that. You just mentioned something I thought was very interesting is how I inter- introduced you, the irrelevant information that I left out because of the context of what we're doing today. And that is something that you mentioned in our initial meeting to plan this uh, outline was code switching and the context and how that is actually how you already always partition your ID to different situations in your life. I was wondering if you could just kind of like go through that a little bit so we can have like more of an idea or context or conceptual idea of what ID is. Mm -hmm. Yeah. So let's take maybe another real life example of an identity that I have with my credit card company. So I am, I am me. I am Dan Ostrovsky. I, I have a lot of different identities. I have one with you, one with my parents, one with my girlfriend, friends. I have all of those identities as part of me. I also have an identity with my credit card company. They issued me a credit card that allows me to make purchases. I don't want anyone else knowing the details of that credit card because obviously then someone else could make purchases without me knowing. I want that information to be private, that part of my identity. I want to to absolutely remain private. And because I know the credit card company cares deeply about that privacy, uh, I trust them as the issuer of my card. So in this case, privacy is essential in order to build trust between myself and the credit card company. I also want to know that it's securely private. Nobody could get those details under any circumstance unless I provide consent. And actually, I I like to say that impersonation is only the sincerest form of flattery when it's still their own lives they're living, not trying to take over our own. If someone's trying to impersonate me to my credit card company, I'm going to be pretty upset about it. But if they try to impersonate me, I don't know, talking about identity, that's maybe that's flattery. And I don't want to spend a lot of time or mental effort keeping that secure. I don't want to think about how my credit card company is keeping that information secure. I don't want to think about how easy it would be for someone to find the password to my account to impersonate me. I just want the guarantee that it stays private. And that last piece about convenience is actually quite interesting. In real life, we don't actually think about how convenient it is to separate parts of our identity by context. You and I, we picked up this morning right where we left off. We didn't need to ask for each other's password to make sure that we're actually talking to each other. We bump into our friends on the street and we have senses. Our visual and auditory senses provide signals to our brains that look up memories and automatically identify and authenticate them. Humans are naturals at identifying other people and things because our sensory system was built to do it. And on the internet, that is the main problem. It's been so much more difficult to know who you're actually connecting with. And there's even a famous drawing you might know by Peter Steiner in 95 titled on the internet, nobody knows you're a dog, which I think perfectly captures the problem we're still facing 27 years later. It's not as easy to prove the person behind the computer screen is the legitimate owner of some account. Therefore, the internet evolved the way it did, where we hand over control of our privacy and security to other companies every time we create an account. And the consequence is that now we have trade-offs. You can have one or two of privacy, security, or convenience, 
but you can't have all three across all of your identity domains. I like the way you put in perspective the different relationships you have with different people, because those are different aspects of your ID. Like you wouldn't want your credit card knowing the relationship you have with your girlfriend, obviously, or, you know, even me, the relationship you have with your parents or, you know, these different. So you actually have these natural permissioned um, physical uh, identifiers that you you, uh, allow people to access depending on your relationship. I allow my parents to know this. I allow my girlfriend to know this. I allow my brother to know this. I allow this group of friends to know this. And maybe my group of friends is my group of friends from high school. And then there's my group of friends from work. And you know what? They get different permissions. They do not bleed into each other. And if they do, it's, I I have to allow that. And that's why you you probably go out with certain friends on certain days and certain friends on other days. And some some friends hang out with your girlfriend and some, some don't. Um, and that's just because those permissions are are being granted by you through these different uh, channels of your your ID, your person, your life, and so on and so forth. And then there's information that you want to you know like have cross or access or share uh, to different relationships. What does this mean um, to the? So wait, we we basically made a foundation of kind of like what we're talking about here: ID, uh, what it means to be you how you think of you, how people think of you and the access you have and people have to you and you give to other people. Let's try to break that down into two things. Can you juxtapose one, how that works now with our, the current state of ID and how that could look like in the digital? Mm, Yeah. So the current state of identity you mean in, in the physical world, yeah, versus the digital? Yeah, exactly, exactly. What does it look like so, right now in like w- with our ID cards? Like how we actually think of ID, how do we conceptualize ID, and then how we can translate that over to digital? And what does digital mean? Mm-hmm. Well, we don't, we don't think about identity uh, in much specificity in real life. Like you mentioned, we we grant certain permissions depending on the context of our conversation relationship. We don't, we don't have to think about that. It's automatic for us. We have a life with our significant other, and then we don't share that with our children or with our parents, at least not, not all of it. Some of it remains private. And we don't have to think about, well, what, what, what should I tell my parents about my significant other? And what shouldn't I? That's just something automatic. And so how do you apply that to the digital world is a very interesting question when it's actually still very difficult to identify who's behind the computer screen. So what we have now uh, really is just this, this crazy environment where we don't have a native layer of identity on the internet. And therefore companies have created these accounts for us. We use usernames and passwords as a way to identify us, to contextualize the relationship that we have with these companies. So you have a username and password with some, let's say Amazon, you have one with Google, you have one with, I don't know, Facebook, you have one with Apple, you have one with uh, Zoom, you have one everywhere. And these are supposed to be a private secure channel, but it's not private and it's not secure for a variety of reasons. So that's where we are now. Where we want to be is we want to be 
we want to have a way for us to go online and to just create accounts without usernames or passwords while knowing with certainty that our privacy is preserved within that channel and that nobody else could impersonate us in that channel. So we, and, and we want it to be automatic. We wanted to, as closely as possible, resemble our day-to-day -day lives, keeping an automatic log of every relationship that we have. And as you mentioned, the permissions that each relationship should have about information about ourselves. You, you actually said something good there is like, we don't always automatically do it right in our day-to-day -day lives. We do share things about our significant other with our parents or our friends that they get mad about if they find out that they shared, you shared with them. Uh, that is their permissions to you. Um, and you basically, I guess, stole access or, 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 you know, got around it. it that's a problem uh, in day-to-day in -day lives. We mess it up all the time, to be honest with you. Um, is it not fair to think that we, that it can't be perfect in digital? That's a good point. Uh, it could be better in digital because there are just some rules that uh, can be applied digitally that can't be applied physically. So if, uh, uh, if I give you some cash and I say, hey, Matthew, please don't use this cash to buy any soda. I, I don't like soda. I don't want you to buy soda with this money. Uh, I, in the physical world, I can't do anything about that. In the digital world, now we know with crypto, I could do that. That is a possibility. And so really what that is, is just information that's being passed. And when we talk about identity information or whatever information uh, we're talking about, it's possible to add those restrictions. So if, if you and I, if we're trying, if you try to share information with me that you want to stay private in our context, you could apply that piece of data and just say, okay, this is restricted to only our channel. Uh, this cannot be shared digitally. Now, of course, I could read that information and then just tell someone else, uh, but that's a, a human error. And the software can only do so much. Uh, humans are, infa are fallible. So uh, there's only so much security we can get with that. Human error, I think is a really good point. And I really want to move to blockchain in a minute, but I just wanted to like, kind of like, just explore this idea of, of digital identity that we currently have. And you mentioned like Zoom, Facebook, Google, Amazon, whatever. Um, I log into a lot of things with my Facebook ID because it's just easier or my Apple ID because it's just easier. It's like, or pay with Apple or, or log in with Apple um, because, well, it's just easier. It's very convenient. Uh, but how much time, how much, I guess, care, how much due diligence do you think that a person needs to have to make sure those permissions are set properly. For example, Facebook hides their permissions in, in uh, you know, security or under privacy and then deep down, and then you have to figure out what toggles to toggle because there's a list of them to figure out what privacy or you want to grant to certain things or ads or you know, cross app advertisements or data transfers. And, and it's daunting, it's taxing, it's tiresome. And so when we're talking about and I'm going to move into blockchain in a minute when we're talking about creating an ID, say on the blockchain, that's going to give you access or, or give different aspects of your life permissions to access certain uh, data. If it's my um, doctor and all my 
you know, med- medical records or my medical data, if it's my credit card company with my credit credit data, is it, or if it's my um, my mortgage company that now has a little bit of my credit data plus a little bit of my employment and tax history plus a little bit of you know different things, um, how moving to like say or just continuing with the conversation about these individual companies, Facebook, you know, Apple, whatever, I can't keep up with it. So why, why can't I keep up with it in a different form, even though it might be more secure, but we'll go into that in a little bit. Mm-hmm. So there are a couple issues you just brought up. One of them is just a, a user experience issue or a user interface issue. Uh, so if we have so much information about ourselves stored anywhere, it doesn't matter, Facebook or Google or on our own key, uh, whatever it is, there's how do we actually, what is the process of sharing that information with some other entity? And uh, there, that is a field of study. There are a lot of teams that are working on, including ours. And there is a new standard on the internet for being able to actually do this. It's a very new standard written by the W3C, the same standards body that has created uh, and written the HTTP standard, HTTPS, TLS, SSL, all of those standards. And they've now released another one uh, for verifiable credentials and decentralized identifiers that basically does exactly this. It's a, it's a standard on the internet for how to share information about yourself uh, in a safe, private way that is easily accessible for people. So in theory, we haven't seen this yet. The sharing of your own information will be a lot more simple than it is now. And then the second part, and this I think is going to be our segue to talk about ID on the blockchain, is who's storing this information. 99% of the time, our accounts are relatively safe. We give Facebook all our information. We give Google all our information. They have a ton of it. You log in with Facebook. It makes creating accounts with other apps and sites so much more convenient. Uh, and you've, you've expressed that quite well. But that 1% of the time where your account is accessed maliciously could be an absolute disaster. So for example, in 2016, the presidential election was arguably swayed as a result of Facebook having so much data about us. And uh, just as context, uh, Cambridge Analytica was, uh, was hacked and a lot of the information that Facebook had about us was leaked. And this is that 1% of the time when something really bad happens, it's a disaster. It's like, it's like not wearing a, a helmet while riding a bike or you know, worse, like let's say we're riding a motorcycle and not wearing a helmet. Uh, most of the time, it's okay. We know how to ride. But what if something happens? It could be a disaster. We really need to protect against that. It's critically important to have a guarantee of privacy. Guarantee that in this case, your information that you trusted with Facebook will never get leaked. But that is only possible with a guarantee of security. And that is only possible when nobody but the owner has the key to their identity on the internet. That is the decentralization part. And let's just move into the blockchain. I guess guess the obvious question is, what is ID on the blockchain? Why use blockchain? And why are you so confident that it's secure? 
Yeah. What is identity on the blockchain? Identity on the blockchain, from uh, my perspective here, is a single sign-on protocol that preserves your privacy and secures you against all impersonation attempts. It's like your sign-in with Apple, except there's no Apple. You can make payments. You can stay private. You can store facts about yourself that, let's say, others have made a claim about you. You can store credit and loyalty cards. You can store COVID vaccines, flight tickets, your driver's license. Now in in Arizona, I think that just came out yesterday. And nobody in the world can access any of it but you. That's identity on the blockchain. Like signing with Apple, except there's no Apple. Nobody can access any of that information except you with a guarantee. What, what, is that, what is that guarantee? I guess that's my, the next part of that question. Is it my private key? Now, look, we already know people can steal my Bitcoin if they have my private key. Uh, what is the, I guess, obviously, I'm, I think of it like uh, when, it, when I think about voting on the blockchain, I think of like uh, multiple factor authentication where it could be my um, face ID, which we already know is like one in a million, uh, only one in a million can spoof my face on my opening up my iPhone. If you mix that with like a face ID plus fingerprint, then it's pretty, pretty damn secure. Um, is, is that like a kind of like you are a bio biometric sort of um, private key? Is it more of like a physical and a bio? Is it more of a something, you know, something you have, something you are? Um, and, and so all I'm saying is there are there's ways of failure of this. And if you are making a something on a blockchain that's going to allow people all these permissions about who you are, um, then there ha- it has to be like almost a foolproof to operate and make sure that it's unhackable unless somebody obviously is maybe kidnapped and tortured. Yeah, exactly. That, and that's a fantastic question. So it's almost like how close can we get to that? How close can we get to absolute security like unless you're captured and tortured and uh and we can get extremely close in fact that's exactly what we're doing so uh other teams uh let's put it this way when you you tell us about what you're doing first what are you doing and then talk about like the other teams and, and things like that okay so we are making uh your devices we're turning them into hardware wallets so we're equipping your Web2 devices for the Web3 future. And it means that your devices, your computer, your, your phone, your tablet, will all, be, uh, will all store a key in the most secure chip on that device in such a way that, first of all, it can never be exported. So now it does become a true hardware wallet. And this is unlike other identity solutions where a private key is in an app or a private key is in a plugin on your browser. Those can all be exported. So there's another, uh, there's another attack vector. But when the private key is stored in a chip that is even independent of the operating system of that device, it's absolutely like a vault. There is no, you cannot export it. And it's secured cryptographically. People have tried, people have failed. It just won't happen. So that's, that's the key portion of it. And now how do you unlock that key is the next question. And for us, you unlock that key in the same way you unlock your device with touch, uh, with a biometric touch, face, 
on Windows, on Google, on Apple devices, every manufacturer now has a biometric. So we are turning your devices into hardware wallets with keys that can never be exported, that can unlock only through the biometric. And so now what we've done is we've made it so that your identity is so secure that you can only, uh, only you will gain access or only uh, in circumstances where you're forced to unlock your device uh, would someone else be able to gain access. But that's it. There is no other way. And even when you are, let's say, captured or, or whatever, you're forced to unlock your device, there can still be ways of, uh, of showing that you are under distress. Like, for example, if you're, if you're uh, I don't know if this is actually true, but this should be true, that if you're at an ATM terminal and you put your pin code in reverse, that should uh, call the authorities. You should be able to still take out money, but this transaction is not legitimate. Uh, it should be a, a, an emergency signal that the authorities should come and help you right away because uh, you are being forced to take money out. So I don't, like I said, I don't know if that's actually true for ATMs. It should be, but it would also be true for uh, a single sign-on protocol like ours. Uh, there will be a way to still unlock your identity, but uh, show that you are under distress. This is, this is, you're, this is a cry for help. Uh, and that would take care of the situation when you're under distress. That's a, that's very, very interesting. And that's a hell of an idea. Um, your pin code in, in reverse, uh, can still unlock it yet. You call the cops at the same time. Uh, if you're at ATM and how do you do that when you're talking about face ID and, uh, showing that you're under distress, I think little AI probably could help you with that. Um, but you never know, uh, that could, you don't want to begin that wrong too many times. Do you, um, I'm going to talk about practical applications. So, before we go about to the blockchain aspect of this, okay, we know we just spoke about unlocking and using your private key to unlock your ID. And so I, these permissions, again, are going to be flipped on and off. The way that I kind of visualize this for myself is that you have, um, it's kind of like using Google Docs. Like you have, you know, uh, make a Google Doc, which is called an Excel spreadsheet. And then when you share it with people, you can share it within your organization. You can share it out of your organization. You can only share it with certain people that you, uh, you know, put on the list then you can give them permissions to either read, write, edit, share, duplicate, blah, blah, blah. And so there's so many different layers of giving people access to different things. And so I, I assume if you're talking about your digital ID um, and you're, you just carry your phone, you don't have your driver's license anymore, you don't have any kind of like identifiers, you, you don't have your um, social security card or your, uh, your, your health ID, your health card, your insurance card, you have all of this condensed into your ID on the blockchain that's on your digital device and you're going to the club, you're buying a beer. You, they say, are you 21? Can you walk us through these different like scenarios of using a digital ID, what permissions they get? And is this actually even possible? Yeah. Great. Okay. So let's talk about a bar. When you go to a bar, I always love talking about a bar and going to a bar, my friend. I know <laughs> I went to Queens to meet up with you at a bar. It was an hour away. Thank you for that. <laughs> well, okay. So let's say you go to a bar and like you said, you need to prove you're of legal drinking age. The way that it could work in the future and the way that I see it working is that let's say there's just some QR code on, uh, on the table. 
And when you scan it and then you authenticate, let's say with face ID to prove that it's you, you're, you are the identity behind, uh, you, you are the owner of the identity right now. You can just then press a button uh, that says, okay, I, I want to share that I am of legal drinking age with this bar, but I don't want to share with them any other information, just that I'm of legal drinking age. That's a, and, let me walk that back really quick. Take it, take your phone out, pull, open your camera, scan the QR code, just like if you're paying for something with Apple Pay, double click on the side. Next thing you know, you're sharing your um, your age with the bar. Now, would that be embedded in the QR code, the permissions that it's asking for? Or would it be something that is embedded in the chip on the user side to ask what you're going to give them? Yeah, it would be embedded in the QR code. So the QR code would just have some information that says, I... All I want in this particular situation is proof that this person can drink. And so you're not even sharing your age. You are just sharing proof that you are of legal drinking age. You don't give your birthday. You don't give your age. And this is zero knowledge proof. Uh, the mm. ability to prove something about yourself without revealing the information behind it. So in this case, proving you're of drinking age, not revealing your age, not revealing your birthday. Got it. And, and so what I'm thinking of a QR code that has that information, those permissions, is there any way to hide some permissions? That's a, that kind of like a little tro Trojan horse. No, and, and, there's, and, and, there's not. There isn't. Okay. So, and, and, and I just want to frame this to everybody else too. Um, when you go to the club and you pull out your driver's license and give it to the bouncer to let you in the club, uh, that bouncer now has all your, all kinds of information about you, where you live, your birth date, your age, your full name, uh, your driver's license number, the expiration date, all of that. If the guy has a good memory or the girl, whatever, uh, has a good memory, they now know who the hell you are for the most part. And they can do a lot of stuff with that ID. Mm -hmm. And so this is a way just to using zero knowledge, zero knowledge proof. Everybody should know um, that from either different protocols or talking about in podcast in the bath back. I'm sorry, in the past um, that you can just now grant. Uh, them to know I am of age and that's it. That's all. That's all you need to do. How would that work with different things? Like for example, applying for uh, a credit card, um, getting a mortgage on a house, going to the doctor. Yeah. So let's, let's say, let's take that last one, going to a doctor. Uh, and let's say it's to, uh, to get a COVID test. Let's say that's the thing nowadays. So you go to some, someplace to get your COVID test. You scan the QR code at the office. And when what is embedded in the QR code is a request for whatever information that they need. So it's a doctor's office. They need something more personally identifiable. They need your name, maybe they need your physical address, your email. I don't know. I don't know what else they need, but I know that every time I go to a doctor's office, I fill out the same damn forms every time. True. And, and so what's going to happen in the future is there's just going to be a QR code that requests this information. This information already belongs to you and your identity. So when that code is scanned, it's just a request to share the information that you already have stored. You never will need to write any forms again. You won't ever have to fill out any redundant information and submit that. You're just going to log in either by scanning this code in real life or using this identity 
to log in to some application or website through single sign-on like we are all used to today. And when they want information from us, when they want our name or when they want our email address, this is already stored in our identity. They're just going to request it. We're not going to need to manually type that in uh, and submit it. It's just going to be requested of us, whatever it is they need. We can either accept it or we can deny it. And your medical records and so on and so forth. Okay, here's my here's my slippery slope because I'm still trying to figure out why this is better. I can see why it's more secure and I can see that there's benefits, but I'm also want, trying to figure out, are we going to get uh, pigeonholed into a into a slippery slope system that actually isn't better. For example, it goes to the doctor. Always talk about getting a mortgage. Um, and yeah, let's talk about getting a mortgage real quick uh, because I'm going to assume you're going to have to give them all kinds of stuff. Your address, where you lived in the past five years. They're going to ask for uh, your, your credit history. Uh, they're going to ask for your tax uh, identification to prove that you are making uh, X amount of money that you claim you are or whatever, or if it's enough for the mortgage, whatever. And so you're going to ask for all of this. And, and, and there's going to be two scenarios. Number one, it's going to start looking like terms of service and you're just going to agree to everything. And you're not actually going to have any idea of what they're actually asking for because it's going to be so much. Uh, same thing with, uh, you know, going to get the COVID test. Like you said, they're going to ask for your health records. Obviously uh, a doctor could tell you, I'm asking for your health records because if we're going to give you this COVID test, I want to know if you have anything that might, I'm sorry, or a COVID test or shot or whatever, anything in your history that might make it, you know, uh, hurt you or kind of want to know like a little bit about your medical history before we give you this shot or this test or any kind of medication, you know, so they're gonna have to look at this. Um, same with the, the mortgage, right? You're going to you're gonna give them all these terms and conditions and then you're, they're going to know about all your tax history and whatever. And they're just going to ask for it. You're going to be like, oh, okay, just take it, you know, whatever. You're going to give them to them. But maybe you don't want to give them all that information. Maybe you don't, maybe they're going to start asking for stuff that you didn't want. And now once they have that information, once they open it up to them, even if it's at one time, even if it's just limited to one ping on the blockchain, uh, that is now all kind of now open in theirs, right? And so I, so I guess my two questions is, is number one, how do, we, how do you ensure that this doesn't turn into, turn into terms and conditions forms where nobody reads and everything's just accessed anyway? And two, uh, how, much, how do you limit the amount of information that you give them? And that might not relate to the reason that you're there in the first place. I think that question could take up as much time to answer as we've already gone through. It's an excellent question. And uh, I'll, I'll make a couple quick points on it. One is that we already are on a slippery slope the way we do things now. We already fill out all this information. We well, already I think we're put... already down the damn slope when it comes to our data on, on yeah, the internet. Right, we, we've, right. We're totally screwed, man, honestly. Uh, we, need to, we need to reel, reel that back in. And when you say Cambridge Analytica and Facebook, if, if I knew this uh, when I first signed up for my Facebook account, I think back in 2004 when I was 2003, 2002, when I was in, in, in college, still, I had to use my uh, hawaii.edu address, I would have never done it. <laughs> yeah, yeah. Yeah, for sure. And so we're, we're already all the way down the slope. It's like, how much worse can it get? Uh, even now, we are not in control of the information really that gets uh, th that we provide consent for. So it's like your question is already applicable to today. It, who knows? It, we fill out a ton of forms. Do these companies actually need all of that information? Or are they just trying to collect as much as they can? So that's one point. And then a second point is you're talking about revealing too much about yourself. Well, in today's world, 
we are we're reusing our identifier everywhere you we go. So when we create accounts, very likely you and most of the listeners are reusing the same email address to create a new account or reusing your Google account or Facebook account to create other accounts. So now literally everything we do, our entire activity on the internet can be traced back to the same identifier, back to the same email address. So we have no privacy. And the problem there is that now all of these companies can aggregate information into one centralized repository like Facebook and are very vulnerable places for attack, like through Cambridge Analytica. So what we need is to move away from the reuse of identifiers. What we need is a new identifier for every context that we have so that even if we reveal too much information about ourselves, it stays private in that context. Our information uh, would be associated to ID 12375Z3 with the doctor's office. But then if we go to another doctor's office and we share our information again, or different information, our ID is G5NM7, some other random string. So if we are exposed on one of those identifiers, the rest of our identifiers everywhere online are still safe, are still private from each other. Moving into blockchain really quick um, and how blockchain works with this. We basically talked about the private aspects and the access key to get into this data and the public key to request data and get that data to uh, the people who are requesting that data. But we didn't actually understand like or talk about the blockchain aspect of it. And there's different blockchains and they have different values and they have different security levels and they have different protocols and they have different ways of just existing. Um, Can you walk through like the, I guess, how the blockchain works in this aspect, what the best blockchain, and I'm not talking about for, for a company, but maybe the way a blockchain is set up for this use case. And I get, definitely got some slippery soaps to, to ask you about after you explain that. Yeah. Okay. So most blockchains, when, they t- when it's about identity or most teams that work on these blockchains and try to solve identity are doing it in almost the same way. You have you have this one private key that somehow is generated. Most of the time it's through some plugin on your, on your browser or through an app that you have to download. And the public key portion of it uh, is saved to the blockchain. So anytime you're proving your ownership of some account on a blockchain, what you're really doing is proving that you are in possession of the private key that can unlock that account. And that's, that's great, but that's only one identifier that we have. So if we are using that one identifier as a single sign-on everywhere else, we still have the same problem of privacy where we're the same person everywhere. And if our name somehow, our real life identity is associated to that one identifier, now, everything is exposed. Everything we've done, everywhere we signed into, all our transactions, all our history. So uh, that's, that's the danger with one identifier now. Now, of course, you could create a new wallet or a new identifier rather, 
but switching between them is difficult. That's that's one issue. Another issue is that uh, having sharing uh, devices, having all of your devices be able to uh, to unlock your identity is actually a really difficult problem, and not all blockchains are really set up for that. So it's just a it's still a difficult issue. We have chosen to build on this particular chain because it gives us uh, a, a different way of working with keys. And what chain is that again? Sorry. We're working on the internet computer. Oh, right. And, and the internet computer is just different. Uh, it's, it's, it's quite different. And even they have a concept of internet identity that we're, we're using, we're building off of. Uh, so that has been extremely interesting. Um, well, I was actually kind of curious about why internet computer um, in, opposed to like Ethsol or whatever. And, and so the reason why I ask about this is, you know, when it comes to blockchain, we think about fees to some, uh, run something decentralized. We talk, talk about node hosting. We talk about the, the speed of, of the uh, blockchain. And the, the slippery slope is, is that the more throughput you're going to need for a blockchain, uh, the more people that are going to be using this. I mean, how many people are getting carded for, you know, getting a beer just right now and need to get that instantly, uh, that instant confirmation? And not to mention doing everything else in life, going to the doctor, you know, trying to get a loan, getting a credit card, buying something, whatever. You're, you're going to need a, a hell of a lot of throughput. And so the slippery slope here is that, and I think that, the same thing that people are looking at with uh, current blockchains, Ethereum versus Solana versus, uh, you know, whatever, is you're seeing that the decentralized aspect of a blockchain is more secure, but it's slower, um, generally speaking. And it's more expensive, generally speaking. And Solana is not as uh, decentralized as Ethereum, but it's way quicker and way cheaper. Um, and then it goes to, like, why doesn't AWS... Uh, Amazon and their AWS system just make a blockchain in their centralized AWS cloud servers. And, you know, it's all in one place and it's going to be super fast and super cheap and maybe wrapped into your um, Amazon Prime account where you just cost you $9.99 a month and all the transaction fees are taken care of. And you know what? It's way more convenient for the, the user. Um, in that case, it's not as secure because AWS, even though it's a blockchain, still could get hacked. And uh, it's, it's everything centralized and we have different problems with that. So I guess my question was, is my slippery slope is this is, is part of the question is why are in a computer and how do we, I guess, scale uh, and, and prevent the natural evolution of most products to be as user-friendly as possible and convenient as possible. And when it comes to digital aspects or things like when it comes to cloud computing, which is this is uh, aspect of it, just making it as centralized as possible for is, is, so, so your product is as cheap as possible and as fast as possible, yet maybe mm -hmm. not as secure. Yeah. So I'll, I'll break that down a bit because there's a lot in there. Uh, and one question is why internet computer and in the context of multiple chains, let's, let's take that one. So I think I, I don't know if the future is going to be multi-chain or not. Let's just, let's assume that it will be multi-chain. There still needs to be an identity for you to go across all those chains. You still need to take something with you to log into apps on Ethereum or Solana or whatever other chain, including Web2. It's not like AWS is going away anytime soon. 
we still want to use our identity to create accounts uh, uh, for Web2 companies, to create accounts for Web3 companies or whatever, for protocols. We still need an identity layer for the internet for that. It's independent whether this application is hosted on some Web3 platform or hosted on a Web2 platform. So that's, that's the first thing. There still needs to be a layer on the internet that is purely for identity. So then we can move into the question of, uh, well, what, what does internet computer provide that other chains don't? And why is that useful for identity? When we're talking about identity, uh, it's extremely sensitive. So we're talking about storing our private information. We're talking about security and convenience. And so we want to know that there is nothing between ourselves in the physical world and our digital extension on the internet. The problem is right now on all these other chains is that there is something in between us and the protocol. There is a front end. There is an interface that is hosted usually on AWS. So the actual site that we're logging into is a site that's hosted on AWS. And when we are logging in to it, we're using some kind of identity. Now, if that identity, if that interface that we're using as a single sign-on to log into all these other applications, if that interface is hosted also on AWS, that means that we are now more insecure and less private, as you mentioned, because there is an application that's hosted on Amazon and Amazon could be hacked or something bad could happen. So that is true. And then the second thing that's true is that there is a team that has an account with Amazon that pays for that interface to be hosted there. So the team could also do something malicious if they wanted to. Now, of course, we trust teams in crypto to safeguard our data and do the, the good things uh, for us. And that is how we sort of need to live life right now as we transition from web two to three. But they're still for identity, for something as important as that, as critical. This is infrastructure. When we're talking about something as important as that, it has to be such that what we are using uh, to log into our identity, to see things about ourselves, to manage our digital selves, that needs to be decentralized. The internet computer serves interfaces along as a smart contract, basically. So that is the, the main reason, because this is the only way to fully decentralize everything about your transition from real life to your digital life. A lot of people don't know we had a conversation before this and we said we're going to keep this around 25 minutes to a half hour. That is not happening. And I'm going to try to wrap it up here in, in two more questions. And I apologize, Dan. Thanks for sticking with me with this. Uh, this is something pleasure. I find very interesting. Um, but I have two, two questions left. The first question is government. Do you think that, and you said this is infrastructure, and I, I agree, this is a form of infrastructure, a form of future infrastructure. Is this something that the government should be involved with to try to make these standards, these regulations, these, uh, I guess, this framework of what digital ID means? Or is this something that's just up to the the free market to make sure that we figure this out and allows that to move forward into our new digital future. 
That's a, a great question. Uh, it touches on a lot of things about identity and, and governance. So should, uh, should the government be involved in the governance of an identity protocol? And I would say, generally speaking, yeah, absolutely. This is a decentralized protocol. If you as a government hold some stake in the protocol, Yes, absolutely. Vote your vote, make your opinion heard. But it shouldn't be such that only the government is responsible for doing this. There are a lot of people out there with a lot of expertise and they have opinions. Let's let's make this a decentralized protocol that is governed by the people, not by the government, not by some other standards body, but by the people. It can include the government. It can include the standards bodies but it shouldn't exclude us as individuals because it is our identity. It is our protocol for the internet. Last question. Why is this important to you? Mm. So I grew up to parents who were born in Ukraine and Belarus, and they immigrate to the States so that I could have opportunities that they didn't. I learned over time that opportunities arise from the alignment of a country's social, economic, and political attitudes. But around the world today, it's difficult to agree uh, on any government that truly represents its people. This movement that we're talking about, that we're in, in cryptographic decentralization will be the foundation for true representation of world governments. And my belief is that identity will be the foundation for how we will represent ourselves and our vote. Identity is important to me because I would like to live in a world that would never have treated my parents the way they were treated, the way some governments treat it, its people and the way power consolidates and could take a country to war. Identity is important to me because in my opinion, it unblocks the shift in power to the people that we otherwise could never get. And I, I lied about that being the last question, but I, obviously, obvious, I guess. Um, uh, uh, next question is: You said you are uh, Ukrainian. Um, your parents were Ukrainian, and now we obviously we have uh, a war in Ukraine. Uh, and it, it, how do you think that ID, this form of ID, could benefit? if it was implemented in the ideas that you have, the ideas that you're working on, the ideas that we spoke about right now, could it benefit the people of Ukraine right now if this new ID or this new kind of digital identity was in place and how? And if it's not, that's fine too. I'm just curious. No, absolutely. There, there are many ways that it could benefit them. I mean, even right now, we're seeing a lot of Ukrainians, even a lot of people in Russia, switching over their, uh, their local currency to crypto. And that, that wallet is a form of identity for them. So generally speaking, it's incredibly important for them to be able to have a way out of that local currency because it's just it's being devalued so, so quickly over time. Uh, but the problem is that there's still, they have a wallet now, but they, it's associated to one identifier. So if the government, if the Russian government or the Ukrainian government uh, wanted to track its people and see kind of how how money is being moved, 
then there's one account identifier that all of this money is associated with. So it's a lot easier to trace. There would need to be mixers. There would need to be all these other components in place in order to be able to preserve your privacy by default. That is the identity solution that, that we're, we are working on uh, to preserve your privacy across all of your transactions, across everything that you own, across contexts. And so that's, that's one issue. Another issue, let's say in, in, uh, in Russia right now, uh, it is forbidden to speak ill of the government. And that is an issue. Uh, some people could say it's an issue. Some people might argue against it. My stance is that I think it's probably an issue that you cannot speak your mind. You cannot provide your opinion without worrying about retaliation from the government. And so the only way around that, the only way to be able to speak your mind is if you can be guaranteed privacy. And the only way to do that is if you can just automatically split your identity based on the context. So if there's an application that just wants uh, your voice to be heard, and you should be able to log into that really quickly, really easily without sharing anything about yourself at all and having a completely new identifier that is completely independent of your identity with the government, of your identity with your name, of your identity with your, yourself. It's just a completely separate one that remains completely private. And that, that would help people in Russia start to speak their minds without any concern of retaliation. And there are many other ways. I mean, this is, it's, a, it's a tragedy what's happening out there and for a variety of reasons, but uh, not being able to be online without security and privacy of your identity is causing a lot of people to just stay hidden and not reach out to people and not seek help, uh, try to use other channels. Uh, it's, it's very dangerous in Russia, especially to be helping people in Ukraine. And part of that is because our identity is not secure. It's not private enough. That is a, and that sounds like a freedom of speech uh, issue, but that goes back to about uh, 20 minutes ago when I asked the question, should government be involved with the development of your ID on the blockchain? Because I can see how some governments, uh, actually probably most governments would be not happy with a, a way to circumvent any kind of um, censoring controls that they might want to put in place for certain periods or, or in certain situations? Well, I think it's important to uh, disambiguate the two things. There is, there is censorship resistance on a protocol level, and then there is censorship resistance on an application level. On a protocol level, it should be just like HTTP or HTTPS. It, it should just be a, a protocol for moving information around. Now, when you're logging into an application, the application should determine what your level of censorship resistance is. The application should decide, okay, we don't want hate speech of this kind or anything goes here. Uh, but that's an application level decision. That is not an identity decision for all of the internet. Yeah, and I want to say thanks for coming on, uh, chatting about this. I think I think I thought it was interesting. I think this conversation is interesting. I think that the um, the I guess uh, high level conversations about what does this look like in the future for Web three is a very 
Um, very important to have, very important to discuss. And I hope more people found this interesting as well. Um, I hope you come back on and, and talk a little bit about what you guys are working on and uh, developments you have. And uh, hopefully I'm using a device that has your, your, your tech in it one of these days. Yeah, thank you, Matthew. It's been a pleasure and an honor. Would love to come back on. An honor, huh? Nobody's ever said that before, but I appreciate that. All right, have a good one, man. Thank you. Thanks.